I would love to dive into uh, where we are today, Romans chapter 1, and in Romans chapter 1, we will, um, I'll read it and then I'll pray, and then after our pr I pray, I will kind of uh, share kind of where we're headed today, okay? So Romans chapter 1, let's, I'll read it for us here. Word of God says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ. Let me pray. So Father, I ask that in these moments you would still our hearts you would take all the distraction and you would just focus our minds in. You would help us to understand, but not just mentally get something. That it would filter from the head to our hearts. And that today we would be changed. And oh God, I wish, I wish that I had the power in and of myself at times to change myself or even others, but it will not be, and I want to declare it loudly, it will not be my ability to communicate or persuade, but it will be the power of your gospel and the power of your gospel alone to change hearts. And so I just call out my weakness and your power, and I pray that you would move to change lives, to restore hope, to wash away sin. God, we need you. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in this wonderful morning, many, uh, many people come here from all kinds of backgrounds, all types of influences. And so I just want to acknowledge from the beginning kind of where we are. Some of you in this room are Christians. You trust in Jesus. You've surrendered your life to him. And you've encountered not a dead religion, but a living Savior. And you'll never be the same again. However, even though you love Jesus, you still have doubts at times. You still have questions that come to your heart and mind. And what we have been working through is to say, it's okay. It's okay to bring your doubts and your questions to the Lord. He wants them. He doesn't want us to have everything together. So what we want to do this morning for you who are believers is to remind you of your faith, that your faith is reasonable, and specifically that your faith is built on a resurrected Savior. But some of you in here, you're not believers. You're not believers. Some of you are filled with skepticism, and that's okay. Some of you really don't want to be here. You've just come because you might like the people you're around or you've been asked, you felt a little guilted into it. And I want you to know, I don't want you to feel odd or out of place. This is a safe place to bring your skepticism, your questions and your struggles. Others of you are skeptical, but you're really inquisitive. You really want to know more about the Christian faith. You want to know more about what these people are singing about and raising their hands about and clapping about. What is this? Well, some of you are wondering in your skepticism, why would people sacrifice some sense of freedom to be enslaved by religion? To be enslaved by a, enslaved by a list of rules? Well, every one of you, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad you're here. You've heard a lot already, but I want to promise you two things. Two things. One is that we are all enslaved 
And true freedom is not found in religion. So I agree with you. But if we are honest, we all must come to grips with something that our experience is struggling to make sense of. And that is that freedom from enslavement is not found in drugs or degrees and it's not found in money or mistresses. There's something more to life. There's a moment of time, and I pray this is that moment of honest reckoning when we deal that everybody wants peace and satisfaction, everybody wants comfort, but all of us, in varying degrees, we battle with guilt and shame, and we don't know what to do with it. On top of these emotional turmoil and longings and struggles, we have mental ones, mental ones. And we've been in a series for five weeks dealing with some of our mental struggles. And here they are. We preached a sermon on each one of these questions. How can the Bible be God's word, literally true in everything that it says? How can a good God send people to hell? Is there only one way or are there many ways to God? And how could a good God allow suffering? These are questions that are hard for everyone. But Christianity has answers. It has a worldview that answers these questions. That the Bible is God's word. And it can be trusted. And we went on to explain that a good God can and must be a God of justice. A God who punishes when there is gross sin, when there is sin at all. And that punishment is called hell. Christianity states that there are not multiple ways, but there is only one way through Jesus Christ. That's the claim he made himself. Only through him can you get to God and find eternal life. And how could a good God allow suffering? Well, we learned last week that our good God sent his only son to die in the place of sinners like me so that we could know that he's not indifferent to our suffering. And even more than that, he loves us so much that he's willing to suffer for us. But although those little sentences don't answer all your objections, maybe you can listen to some of the other sermons. Today we're going to end this series entitled Solid, A Sure Word for a Shaking Faith. We're going to enter asking this one question today. We're going to answer this one question today, and that is how does the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead help all of our objections and more than that address our deepest longings? How does the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead address and help us? doesn't answer all of the questions, but it helps us with our objections. And even more than that, it addresses our deepest longings. There's three things we want to walk through today. Number one, the resurrection is not just a story in and of itself. It's part of a bigger story. It is the apex of a larger story, a story that has... Ultimately, two large components, weakness and power. A story of weakness and power, and we're going to look through that. Number two, the resurrection, it says something. It declares something, and that is it declares the power of Jesus, that everything that he claimed to be and everything that he said is true. If he is alive from the dead, then we have to believe everything that he says. If he is still dead, then you should not believe not only what I say, but what he says. There's that much writing on the resurrection. And number three, if it's the apex of a larger story of weakness and power, 
And if it declares by a fact that he is alive and therefore he is powerful enough to overcome the grave, then the resurrection changes lives. It changes not just the brain and what you think about, it changes the heart. And so let's just look at it some today. As we look at Romans 1, it's going to help answer some of these questions. The first thing is that the resurrection is the apex of a larger story of weakness and power. Look at the Bible with me, Romans chapter 1. The Bible begins with Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus. Paul was a follower of Jesus, and it says in the Scriptures that he was carried along by the Holy Spirit so that as he wrote down these words, they were the very words of God. He wrote 13 letters in the Bible, and he now is writing this, and he describes something about himself. He's a servant or a slave of Christ Jesus. And he was called to be an apostle. That's one who's given authority sent out with the good news, and here's what's interesting. He is set apart for the gospel of God. He's set apart for the gospel of God. The gospel means good news. Good news. But what's interesting is that the good news is not just that sinners can be forgiven and that hope can come to the hopeless and that people can find compassion and presence in the midst of their loneliness, the good news at its core is about God. It is the good news who has God as what is central to it. And forgiveness only matters if it gets us to God. Comfort only matters if it's comfort that allows us to know Him. Peace can only be found when it's, we're in right relationship with God. The good news centers on God. Without God, there's no good news. And Paul's life was set apart for this good news that has God at the center. At the center. And let me just summarize this good news for you briefly. I'll start out with three phrases. God, man, problem. God, man, problem. God. The Christian worldview believes there is a God. There is a God. Just like there's a watch, we say there is a watchmaker, there is creation, and we say there is a creator. We say that in that creation there is intimate, beautiful design which cries backwards to one who has designed it. And the Christian worldview says that God is the maker of heaven and earth, and he holds everything together by his words. He created everything by words, and he holds it all together by his words. He is intimately involved. He is not deistic in that the sense of he created and said, I hope things go well for you, done. He's hands-on. He's involved, and he loves. This is our God, and God not out of need, but out of the overflow of who he is, he created humanity as the apex of his creation. Trees are great, mountains are wonderful, animals are really cool, but humanity is what is most supreme in creation. Humanity has both body and soul. Body that will die, soul that will never die, and all those who trust in him will receive a resurrected body, a new body for eternity. God creates man. They're in perfect relationship with one another. Everything is beautiful and wonderful. But the Bible lays out that our parents, two real people, Adam and Eve, had everything that they needed, and yet they betrayed their God. They committed high treason, mutiny against their captain. They introduced into the world fracture and deformity and decay and disease. Their sin all of a sudden shattered beautiful perfection. And now what comes is a problem. A problem. So much so that their first kids, Cain and Abel, that one ends up killing the other. And every one of us, every one of us has to admit there's a problem with our world. I know it. 
And you know it. You've gotten angry. Someone's gotten angry at you. Someone said things to you that were hurtful. You've been oppressed. You've been mistreated. You've been betrayed. You've been lied to, haven't you? It hurts, doesn't it? You've lied yourself. That's just on a personal level. But what about at a macro level where you have disease and death? Where you have terrorists breaking into a Kenyan school, taking almost 700 hostage and killing 160. This world has problems. And it's because sin is there. It's because we have chosen to break away from God's beautiful design. He says, follow me. Follow me and you will walk in peace. But now they said, no, suffering has been introduced. So now he says, follow me and although you will still suffer, I will be with you until the end of the age. But everyone here has to admit the world is broken. And so what do you do with it? What do you do? The only solution to your own personal guilt and shame or to the brokenness of our world is either we are powerful enough to fix it or somebody else has to. So let's just try it. Let's just put it through the test. Are you powerful enough to fix the global sin problem? That's how, the, that's how Christianity would describe it, sin. Are you powerful enough to, to fix that? Of course not. We will fight with all of our might. We will do research, and I pray God gives us breakthroughs over cancer and Alzheimer's and all these horrible diseases. But we will not be able to alleviate all suffering. We cannot solve it. And what about your own personal suffering? Your own personal oppression? You've tried to fix others, haven't you? You've tried to make people do what you want them to do. How's that going for you? Marriages, you've tried to make your spouse into your own image. It didn't work so well, did it? I know I tried. I still do at times. So we can't fix others. We can't fix our global problem. What about our own personal guilt and shame? Work hard enough. Work hard enough and then God will accept you. When he's perfect and you're imperfect, how hard do you work to get back to perfect? Once you've fallen once, the fracture's there. You'll never be perfect. That's the demand. What do you do? What do you do with your own personal guilt and shame? Well, you try to bring others along so that they would experience it so you feel less guilty. Or you try to salve it with some type of substance or some type of some type of image or something that would pull you away from reality so that you would be numb to it. But it doesn't ever fully deliver. The hangover goes away. And you're still left with the guilt and shame. There's another answer to our problem. And the answer of Christianity is Christ and faith. Jesus Christ came to do what we couldn't do. He fulfilled the law perfectly. He committed no sin. And yet... He died a sinner's death. All of our sin placed upon him. He died on the cross so that anyone, anyone who trusts in him, his sacrifice would be applied to their guilt. He took the wrath and punishment that our sin deserved and it's placed upon him and he absorbs it. He takes it so that if we trust in him, the just wrath of God, which should be ours, is absorbed. And we are given new clothing, righteousness as our clothing. And we can stand, not as enemies, but as children of the Most High God. The only answer to our problems is Jesus Christ, who is our mediator, who alone bore the sin that we have committed. He bore it on his body on a tree. And so the call is, he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead three days later. And anyone who trusts in him can have hope of eternal life amidst a new heavens and a new earth where there's a restoration of all things.
A way to summarize it might be this. God made it all. We lost it all. So God and his son gave it all that we might gain it all. And what are we gaining ultimately? We're gaining Jesus. We're gaining more of him, the answer to our greatest heart. Now that is good news. That is good news. In the midst of your frailty, that is good news. And do you know what? That was told about long ago. That is not just a message that was kind of crafted by some really desperate people saying, okay, let's, let's make a religion that kind of forces its way in here and is an answer for, an, for a season. No, Romans 1 tells us this. This gospel of God was promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. That is, the Bible. The Bible is the Holy Bible. It is the Holy Scriptures believing that it is God's Word in its entirety. And before Jesus came, He was prophesied about. He was prophesied about. Now, what we're not saying is this. So, like, let's take the Hunger Games, for instance. You know, you've got these books that were written that were made into movies. What we're not talking about is this. We're not talking about, okay, the books are written, the movies haven't come out, and somebody kind of comes in and says, hey, I think these books are going to become movies. And then they become movies. I mean, you got a pretty good shot that, you know, any book that's selling millions of dollars worth of books are going to probably be made into a movie, right? Harry Potter, it happened there, right? Okay, so we're not saying that. We're saying that before the author ever came onto the scene, before the books were ever written, it would have been said, the book, this person will write the books and they will turn into movies. The scriptures lay out something extremely more profound, kind of like even greater than this. Take all these superhero movies that have come out, right? Superman, Batman, you know, you like some of those? Okay. Well, they started out as comics, right? The DC and Marvel battle. So... You have comics that people love them and they turn into really bad movies, right? <laughs> uh, go on Netflix. Some of you like them. I didn't mean to offend you. But go on Netflix. You can see like the Batman movie and it's just really poorly done. So, you know, and now they've turned into these blockbuster hits, right? You've got this Superman. You've got Batman has all of his movies made by two different you know, actors and going to be a third set of actors kind of coming into the plan. And, and so it's like saying before comics were ever even thought of, comics are going to come and really bad movies are going to be made and then really good movies are going to be made and people are going to spend millions and billions of dollars on them. Even greater than that, the scriptures say this, thousands of years before Jesus ever comes onto the scene, over 300 prophecies were made about him, about a Messiah coming. And a Messiah had to be a certain way. He was going to die in the place of sinners. He was going to be betrayed with silver. He was going to have his side pierced. 300 different prophe 300 prophecies, 60 different unique prophecies. And he fulfilled every single one of them. I've stated it over and over. The probability guys, when they come and look at this, they say, no way, no how. Because the chance of one, a chance of eight prophecies being fulfilled by one person is one in 100 million billion. Just let that sink in. You don't say that number a lot. And we're saying eight times that almost. Jesus fulfills it perfectly. Beforehand, the gospel of God was written about. It was not just something catered for some culture that was in crisis. It was catered for humanity. It was written because humanity is in crisis. And the only answer is Jesus Christ. And so the scriptures centered on Jesus. Look at verse 3. Concerning his son. The scriptures talk about Jesus. Jesus is the hero, the central character of the scriptures, and he is said to have two things going for him here. He is the son of David, and he's the son of God. The son of David and the son of God. This is how the story continues to be a story of both weakness and power. 
son of David means Jesus is human. He was human, completely human, because he came from the line of David. David was an Israelite king, and Jesus came through that line. His mom, Mary, was in that line. And yet, Jesus didn't come about in a normal way. Jesus didn't come about from the union of a man and a woman. God placed a baby in the womb of Mary, and she had a virgin birth. That, too, prophesied about over a thousand years before it happened in Isaiah 7:14. So what we have here is not only Jesus as a man, but we have Jesus who is completely God. Now, if that doesn't hurt your head, nothing will. So, let's make sure we understand. Jesus is from the line of David. He is human. He wept. He was tempted. He got weary and tired. He was betrayed. He was mocked. He experienced physical and emotional pain. He is human. That is Jesus. And yet, not only is he human according, it says, from the line of David according to the flesh, but look at what else it says in verse 4. And he was declared to be the Son of God, ultimately by the resurrection from the dead. He was said to be God himself. When the Jews heard this phrase, Son of God, it meant you were making yourself equal with God. That's why they killed him. They didn't like Jesus claiming to be God himself. And Jesus claimed it over and over and over. Here's a verse for you. Some of you might know the verse John 3.16. John 3.16. Why don't you say it with me? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. You see it sometimes at sports events, John 3.16, hung up everywhere. What's this verse saying? God so loved humanity that he gave his one and only son, his begotten son. What does that phrase begotten mean? Well, C.S. Lewis a scholar, professor from, and Cambridge and Oxford. He is uh, a brilliant literary uh, genius. He wrote, many of you know, Chronicles of Narnia, but he also was a Christian apologist, which means he defended the Christian faith. And he wrote this about this phrase, begotten. He said, birds beget birds. People beget people. God begets God. When God sends his only begotten son, his son is then said to be God. That's what it means for him to be begotten. He is fully God. He is unique and has the very qualities of God in characteristics, substance, and being. He is God. So much so that within 20 years of Jesus' death, the church rallied around this because they knew that's what he taught, and they sang it. That was part of their songs, that Jesus was God. Philippians 2, 6 through 8, records one of those songs. And so in this story of weakness and power, we see he was weak in that he was human, but he is powerful in that he is God himself. Listen to the song that they would sing. And I have no clue how the tune goes, so I'll spare you that. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what's this first line of the song mean? Who, though he was in the form of God, i.e., God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That does not mean he reached up to be God and he couldn't grasp onto it. It means that he was fully God and in his love he loosened his grip on some of, some of the divine attributes. He emptied himself. He let go of exercising some divine powers. 
yet in substance and being, he is completely God. He emptied himself, it says, taking the form of a servant. He is God himself. Now, for some of you who have worldviews of multiple gods, you have no problem with me saying Jesus is God because you're like, okay, he's a God alongside other gods. Well, there is a problem because Jesus was a monotheist. That means he said there is only one God, and I'm it. He wasn't saying I'm okay to be there with all the other ones. He says I am God alone. And so now if you read the Bible, you could get really confused. Because if he says I am God alone, what's remarkable is thousands of Jews who were also monotheists believing in one true God, started following Jesus and started loving Jesus. That means his teaching and his nature and who he was was so shocking that it accorded with his claims to be God. Now, what does that mean? Because if he's a monotheist and believes in one God and yet he was praying to the Father who is God, now all of a sudden we got some problems. This is why the Christian faith and worldview has the concept of a trinity. A trinity is three persons, one God. And you bear with me because this matters regarding your life. Three persons, one God. Augustine says this. Some of you might not believe in a trinity and you might think it's just foolishness. But Augustine says this. If you don't believe in the trinity, you have a deficient and defective God. You have a God who never loved anyone until he created the world. And therefore, he never had a relationship. Therefore, he created out of need. You have a needy God. The Christian God is a trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons, one God, therefore existing before humanity came onto the scene in perfect love and harmony, in perfect relationship with one another. And therefore, when God created, he created not out of neediness, but out of an overflow of love to invite people in to love him and find full satisfaction with his glory. He created not to get love, but to give love. Radical difference. Many other religions have a needy God who just is feigning for someone else's love. The Christian God created. He created humanity not to get love, but to give love. And Jesus is that perfect expression of his love. So, here's the story. Resurrection, the climax of a story of both weakness and power. If Jesus in his weakness is human, yet also he is fully God in power, then there's a lot of hope for you and I. We don't have to be pessimistic regarding the possibility of change. If he is truly God, then all of his promises are true and there's hope. There's hope for your marriage. There's hope for you as an individual. There's hope for your addiction. There's hope for your struggle and your loneliness. Jesus Christ is God, and all that he says is true. He understands your weakness, and yet he comes alongside you in power and says, trust your life to me. It's profound in that you don't have to handle your life alone because Jesus Christ is not dead. He's alive. And that leads us to the second main idea, that the resurrection declares the power of Jesus. The other two are much, much shorter. That was laying groundwork. Take heart. In this story of weakness and power, we see if we talk about Jesus being raised from the dead, then it means what? He died, right? If you're raised from the dead, it means you had a dead Jesus at some point, right? That's part of the weakness, and his resurrection is part of the power. Well, you see in Romans, he says that he was declared, definitively declared in one act of the resurrection to be God. It was affirmed, solidified, guaranteed he is God himself by the resurrection. But the resurrection assumes that he was also 
so weak that he had to die. So let's deal with the weakness part. When Jesus died, it was not a mistake. It was an intentional plan of divine love. Jesus' death is an intentional plan of divine love. A plan that told every follower that God is both just and he is loving. Why does he have to die? Well, the image that comes to my mind has to do with coffee. Now, I have from Christmas a special double-walled kind of porcelain-esque, breakable is all I'm getting at, coffee mug. Have you ever had those moments where something has been sitting there and you are looking there and you do that and it goes flying and everything begins to go slow and then you reach out only to compound the problem because you drive it into something else and it shatters into lots of pieces. Well, thankfully that didn't happen to my favorite mug, but what if it did? <laughs> What if it did? It's happened to other favorite things. But I use a coffee mug because what? Coffee holds what? Hot coffee most of the time, right? I know iced coffee is the end thing when it's 80 degrees, but if it's hot, what if I told you this? For the next several weeks, I sweep up all the pieces and I try to put that mug back together. It's in shards. It's the most complicated jigsaw puzzle known to man and ultimately impossible to put everything back together. But I give it to you, all super glued up, and I hand it to you, and I say, do you want some coffee in this? What's going to happen? It's going to spring leaks right and left, right? It's going to burn your hand. Sin has been introduced into the world, and it has fractured the world. We're not able to put it back together. On top of that, there was a punishment that had to come for our sin. Jesus Christ said, I will be that punishment. I will die even though you deserve it. I will take your punishment even though you should be on trial. I will submit my life to be on trial. And I will take the punishment of a criminal even though I'm completely perfect in every way. Jesus died. He died to communicate his love and his ability to forgive even the grossest, whatever your mind can think of, the grossest of sinner. You know what? We had a service here on Friday night. Um, we don't do that all the time, but for Easter week, we had a good Friday service. And I don't know, some of you might have felt this way this very morning, but I had an ugly heart on Friday and I struggled kind of at times wanting to come to that service. Have you ever been there? Okay, nobody said really loudly that they did. But I do, okay? I have. So we come, my wife was sick, and I was just like, okay, maybe it would be better just to kind of hang out with her. No, that's not good. I'm going to go to this service, and I'm going to take my kids. And as we're going, of course, my kids have allergies to pollen and so eyes are running headaches are happening oh I'm feeling horrible oh let's go and sit in a service okay so that's what we're going to do so we come and we come and we sit down and some of you might have had this experience this morning right so you come and you sit down and you're kind of sitting through this thing and can I tell you what happened as we heard the scriptures sung something began to happen in my heart and as I heard the scriptures being read, what was once indifference became love. What was once a lack of desire became a fullness of desire. And here is one phrase or one group of scriptures that struck me that Friday evening. John 13. Jesus describes how much he loved us and that he was going to die. Imagine the King of kings and Lord of lords, and here's what he says. 
John 13, now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that the hour had come to depart out of this world, the hour had come that I've got to die. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He did not give up. That phrase just smacked me. Although you didn't want to be here, Sean, I'm loving you right now. And then he goes on to tell me about his love. It says, during the supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose up from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he ties it to his waist, he pours a basin, and he washes the nasty feet of his followers. He's about to die, ready to walk right into the buzzsaw of the Roman government and of the Jewish elite. And what he wants to do is to wash the feet of those he loves. And you know what? It wasn't because they were lovely, but it was because it was his nature to love. And he washed the feet of those very people who when the mob comes to arrest Jesus, they scatter. He washes the feet of the very person who denies him three times that he even knows Jesus. And he washes the feet of one named Judas who would betray him. What love the Father has shown to us. And as you jump down in this story, Jesus foretells that Judas is going to betray him. He knows it. It's not like he's ignorant. And he says this, after saying these things, Jesus was troubled in the spirit and testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And the disciples looked at one another, uncertain about who he spoke. One of his disciples, whom, lo whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table close to Jesus. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And I tell you, that sentence struck me. Struck me sitting right there in this room. Because the answer in here is it was Judas. Judas is the one that's going to do it. But you know what the answer is if you read the whole of the Bible? Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you? It's me. I'm the guilty one. I'm the one who betrayed my Savior. Lord, who is it? It's me. It's me, and it's you. And it's every person on planet Earth has betrayed the perfect Son of God. And in his love, he shows up that the act that he wants to do before the cross is to wash people's feet, to show that he is able to cleanse and to show our mission of being servant-hearted, sacrificial people who love. And then he goes to the cross for betrayers like me and you. Jesus had to die. He had to die so that we could be washed clean and forgiven and made new. You're not a lost cause in this room. He died so that you could be changed. And so he had to be weak and he became weak for our weakness. He had to suffer so that he could identify with our suffering. He had to feel pain so that he would be able to grieve in our grief. He had to be tempted and tried so that he would understand our temptation. That's the weakness. But the power is that he did not sin at all. He was perfect in every way. He walked to the cross and was obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He died a sinner's death, although he was perfect. And three days later, the resurrection declared that all that Jesus said is true. He is the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the only hope for sinners on the planet. His weakness leads to power, and his power is the hope of the resurrection for us today. Oh, dear friends, he is alive. And the resurrection declares 
him to be who he says he was. He rose from the dead, and it wasn't just like anybody else's rising from the dead. Lazarus had actually been raised from the dead in John chapter 11 in the Bible. His resurrection was different. He had a body that would never again decay, would never again have disease or sickness or age, never again have weakness. It would live forever. This was the story of the resurrection. And friends, we have to understand, the resurrection is a historical fact. Hundreds of people witnessed Jesus alive. You don't write an account of witnesses seeing Jesus in the time of what was known as the Pax Romana, which was a time of peace when people could travel anywhere and verify the story. You don't write about witnesses if you don't want your story to be verified if it were some make-believe hoax. But it was true. Observed by hundreds of witnesses. The first people to see Jesus were women. You wouldn't include that in that day to support your story unless it were true. It was a historical document. Histories weren't changed back then. When they were written, they were kept. So if you wrote this, you wouldn't have the chance to change it and, and add to it later to try to fix your bad idea. And then the greatest problem is not only do you have witnesses, but you have an empty tomb. If you just have an empty tomb and no witnesses, he could be stolen, he could, his body could be taken away, whatever. But you have an empty tomb with witnesses that he's alive. You have both. There is more historical evidence for the resurrection than many historical things that you and I believe to be true. Jesus is alive. He is alive. He is risen from the dead. And if that is true, then everything changes. Every word of his is true. All of his claims are true. And therefore, our lives can never, ever be the same. Do you know off the coast of North Carolina this week, there was a sailor that was found. He was found after being out there for 66 days, stranded. He said that he survived after winds had thrown him off course and his ship had been kind of wrecked and torn up, his sail ripped off. He survived by gathering rainwater to drink, by eating the leftover food he had and then catching fish. And he survived for 66 days when... He was recently found, and his parents had been praying this whole time that he would be alive, but probably pretty pessimistic with each passing day. And can you imagine the news when they come to the parents and say, he's been found, he's been rescued. He's in the hospital and he's okay. 10,000 times more elation is it that Jesus Christ has overcome the grave. Sin has been defeated. Satan has been put in his appropriate place. And death, which is the greatest fear of all humanity, has been conquered. And Jesus says, I am your only hope for guilt and shame. And if you trust in me, I will not only give you hope in the midst of your suffering now, but when you die, you will be with me forever in a new resurrected body, in a new heavens and a new earth. All wrongs will be made right. All suffering be wiped away. The calling right now is to celebrate in the resurrection. He's alive. It is true. And it changes everything. And so now as we go into a time of reflection, we must understand this, that the resurrection changes lives. And here's a question. Here's a question that many of you might be asking. It's a quote from Leo Tolstoy. He says this, my question, that with age, that which at age 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions lying in the soul of every man. A question without an answer to which no one can live. You need an answer to this question. It was this. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. 
Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me doesn't destroy? I don't want you to live that way. There is a new story, a good news to be told. A story of both weakness and power. A Savior who can identify with your sufferings and yet who is fully God and powerful enough to overcome your shame and guilt. The call in this very moment is for you to surrender your ability to fix your own life and to trust, maybe for the first time, that Jesus is who he says he is and he is worthy to live your life for him forever. This is not just a mental ascent. This is God doing a desire-changing work in the heart and what Tim Keller calls a fundamental switching of allegiance. It is saying, not just I want to get good things from you, God, but God, I need you. I need you to change me. I need you. You are my greatest delight. And so the call is to count the cost. But I pray you hear in this message a Savior who proved his love for you so much so that he died in your place and a Savior who is God himself powerful enough to overcome your deepest hurts. You're loved. You're guilty, but you're loved. Come to him. Believer in this room, Answer that question. All these testimonies walked through here over and over. Answer that question for yourself. Because Jesus is alive, this matters. What is it in your life? Let's pray. Father, I ask in this moment of reflection that, God, you would help us to understand what it is that we were created for. To love you, to worship you, to draw near to you, to know you. And I just ask for those who are struggling, I pray that they see life through different lenses. I pray that they see the beauty of Jesus Christ, how he alone can change and save and rescue, and how that offer is not just for those of a certain ethnicity or a certain background or nationality, but that offer is for anyone who would believe. The offer is broad. And so, God, I ask, I ask that you would save today. And that for those who have already trusted in Jesus, they would see how the resurrection matters as they fight their own sin, as they deal with suffering in their own life, as they struggle with personal struggles, as they have marriages that are uh, really difficult at times, or raising kids that are hard. Lord, may we be able to say, because Jesus is alive, blank. And may it be powerful in our own hearts today. Lord, because you are alive, I have hope. I've been set free. I don't live to be accepted, but I am accepted, and therefore I live. And I am freed up to love unconditionally, without stipulations. I am forgiven, and I can now forgive. And so, Father, I pray that you would help us as we reflect.